You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. It is the year 1814, and Napoleon Bonaparte has been exiled to the island of Ibla, off the coast of Italy, under English supervision. For fear of an attempt to rescue Napoleon, the British have soldiers stationed all across the island, patrolling the island, preventing anyone from getting there and possibly rescuing this evil emperor. However, two young sailors come ashore in a desperate attempt to save the life of their captain. They run into Napoleon and they are begging him, sir, please let us borrow your surgeon to help save the life of our captain. The young, innocent, and brave Edmund Dantes and his nobleman, best friend, childhood friend, Fernando Mondego, both meet Napoleon and have their lives inextricably changed. Edmund Dantes is an innocent young man. He cannot read, but he is a loyal man. He is loyal to those who love him. Napoleon sees this innocence and asks Edmund to deliver a non-political letter to a friend back in France. Edmund is a little hesitant of this at first, but he eventually decides to go and deliver the letter. After all, it's all innocent, isn't it? Upon returning to France, Edmund meets up again with his beautiful fiancée, Mercedes, whom his best friend, Fernando, covets. A little conspiracy then begins to take place, and Edmund is framed for a crime that he did not commit. He is sent to prison for 14 years, claimed that he was a spy for Napoleon. And during those 14 years, Edmund is beaten, tortured, starved, and all other manner of evils happen to him. He eventually gives up on God. But then as fate would have it, one day a man comes through his wall, and it's this priest. And this priest for the last five years has been digging a wall through the cell in order to escape. And he sees Edmund and says, Sir, if you would be willing to help me dig out of this place, I will give you something more valuable than what you could ever imagine. I will give you an education. Edmund agrees, but he says, priest, I will only help you if you also teach me how to use the sword. For his mind, in Edmund's mind, he has decided, I am going to seek revenge on everyone who has harmed me. I have only lived my life the last 14 years in pain and misery. I want my revenge. I have given up on God, as Edmund has said. This is the classic story of the Count of Monte Cristo that was written by Alexander Dumas. It has captured and held people's imaginations for almost 200 years because, let's just face it, everybody loves a good revenge story. There is something visceral about the idea of taking something into our own hands in order to get back what we think is due to us. But the story of Edmond Dantes really is a question that the reader is asked to answer. And the question is, is revenge ever worth taking in our own hands? Here at Rockland, we have been going through all of these different psalms as of late, and we've seen heavenly hallelujahs, and we have also gone through horrific heartaches. But the psalm that we're going through today is a rather interesting psalm because it seems to be a blend of these two. David seems to be in a kind of emotional wrestling match with himself where he is calling on one thing and then he's going through another. And in dealing with this question, are, are we ever to take revenge into our own hands? 
this psalm seems to be giving us a different way of answering that question. For the world's answers for answering this question seem to be one of two different extremes. Either we are supposed to go one way and say, there's nothing I can do, I need to give up, I can't do anything, I have this bitterness in my soul that I just have to live with, there's nothing I can do. And on the other hand, we have this other extreme where we then say, no, I will do whatever it takes to make things right. I will take revenge into my own hands. However, Scripture's answer for this problem is that it is not one or the other. It is a unique answer to both. We are not to seek despair or revenge, but rather we are to seek the Lord. And as we go through this psalm, we're going to see that David has three main ideas of what he is going to do when he goes and seeks the Lord instead of falling into despair or seeking his own revenge. We will see that David will, one, be honest with God, that two, he will know God to be judge, and three, he will give thanks to that judge. David will know, uh, David will be honest with God, he will know God as judge, and he will give thanks to that judge. So what exactly is happening in this psalm? When we first read it, we see that David is kind of speaking schizophrenically here. He says, oh God, vindicate me by your name. God is my helper. I will sacrifice a free will offering to God. What in the world is actually going on with the psalm? Now, most of the psalms in our Psalter actually has some sort of context to it. Very few don't, but this one most definitely does. And it is at the very start of the psalm, right before the very first verse. It says, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is David not hiding among us? So who are the Ziphites? I'm sure most of us would say, okay, I know of a whole bunch of different ites in the Bible, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites. I know of no Ziphites. Who are these Ziphites? It's interesting because when I was researching this psalm, the Ziphites came up only one time in the life of David. So clearly this is where we're supposed to go and look and figure it out. It's in 1 Samuel 22 and 23. This is the episode in David's life where King Saul is after the life of David because David seems to be gaining favor in Israel and he is going to be seemingly the next king. And that is something that Saul cannot have. He wants his son to be the next king. So when David flees from Saul, he first flees to his friend Doeg, but his friend Doeg betrays him over to Saul. And then David is hiding in a very specific area in his own home area of Judah. The Ziphites are a sub-clan of Judah. They are basically family members of David. Now that puts an entirely different spin on how we read what, this, what is going on in this psalm. And immediately you then go and see Oh my goodness, David is lamenting over the fact that his friends, that his king, and his family have all betrayed him and said, I want you dead. This is not something fun that anyone, any one of us, would ever want to go through. Now, while we all may never actually have all those three things going on in our lives, at some level, we have all experienced hurt and betrayal from someone that we know and deeply trust. And David is giving us this first bit of information on how we should actually deal with these visceral emotions when they come up, whenever life gives us a raw deal. Now let's go ahead and read the next few verses now with this context in mind. O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. 
O God, hear my prayer and give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me and ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Notice the language that David is using here when he is describing the people who have harmed him. Strangers, ruthless men, they do not set God before themselves, meaning they, are, they know of God, but they do not consider the outcome of knowing him. They don't think about how we should be acting and behaving when it comes to the fact that we claim to know God. They're acting in non-accordance with that truth. The first thing that David is telling us as Christians, as a model of how we handle this, is that we need to be honest with God. We need to be deeply honest with God. When we are not honest with God, with our emotions, we tend to not only lie to ourselves, but we're also lying to God. David is being blunt here. Think back to the world's options on how we deal with uh, these, this issue of revenge. It wants us to say, either I'm going to just give up and we just stew in our emotions, and I'm sure all of us have been there at some point where we say, ah, oh, there's just nothing I can do. I just, ah, oh, there's nothing I can do, and I'm in great pain, and it just sucks. And the other end is, well, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to use this energy that I have in order to get what I think is right? But notice something here. David is neither passive and he's neither active in either of these two extreme senses, but rather he is taking it specifically and directly to the God of the universe. He is not complaining, but he is being honest with God. Now this should be something that frees us emotionally because we need to express, express our feelings. We need to let these sort of things out. I don't know anyone here who really wants to say, you know, I. I'm just a really good Christian, and nothing really phases me at all. That's just not how we are supposed to handle our emotions. It is a lie. It is something that people can see that is inauthentic, and it's not true. It is not wrong to lament and be honest with God in our pains. If anything, it is wrong to lie to God about uh, to, it is wrong to lie to God about our emotions and the situation that is confronting our lives. He cares about honesty. He cares our, our, about our emotional honesty. And he wants us to be emotionally honest with him. He is the God of the universe. He's big enough to handle your emotions, and he can take it. But we should nevertheless have some sort of guidance whenever we do this. Back in Ecclesiastes 5, David I'm sorry, the preacher, not David, has this written thinking about how we should handle our emotions with God. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart say, uh, or, nor, or nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for he is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. I think what's happening here is that the preacher is saying, Know the context of when you're supposed to speak to God. If you just let your emotions flow whenever and wherever, specifically in a church, specifically in a sanctuary, there's just something inappropriate about that. It's not for everyone to see at constant times. Rather, think about where you need to go or put it like this. Know who's in charge and know when you're supposed to say it. Now, if you think that that's a little too restrictive, see exactly what Job then said when everything just went wrong in his life. And these are pretty strong words. If you're ever in an emotional bind and you just want to, like, vent, I would read the book of Job. It's great. 
Job 3, he says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let doom and darkness claim it. Now, that's some pretty strong words right there. I think he's being pretty honest about what's going on with his life. There is a time and a place to be honest with God, and we are allowed to express our emotions to him that all come from our heart. Not all places or times are appropriate, but we should find a time and a place that is. And that is David's first step in how he deals with these deep emotions. When you are grieving, give your emotions to God. Be honest with the Lord. And once you have been honest with the Lord, the next step is to know God is judge. Verse 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Now, verse 4 is something that all we good Christians can get behind. This is so emotionally satisfying. It's so emotionally good. And as a matter of fact, when you think about it, God is my helper. He upholds my life. I can't think of anything stronger to say that the God of the universe is out for me, that he wants to be there for me, to help me, to guide me. He is my helper. He sustains my life. That Hebrew word right there for helper is the same word when God is saying, I will find a suitable helper for Adam. Now, of course, Eve was the suitable helper for Adam on a human-to-human -human level, but on a human-to-divine level, God is our ultimate helper. There is no one that we should seek greater than him because he is the one who sustains and upholds our life. What is happening in this verse is David has gone from the emotional torment that he has right here, his own subjective experience, to moving to the objective fact of who God actually is. He has, moved from who, uh, he has moved from his internal emotional state to the objective fact of who God is. Knowledge is power. It really is knowledge is power. Anyone here knows Schoolhouse Rock? You know that phrase. Because knowledge is indeed power. Think about it. Think of the first time that you were you know, with your loved one or someone that you loved, and that person said, I love you. Finally, just finally. It's not something that you're just guessing. It's not something you're thinking that it might be the case. You now have knowledge that this other person loves you, that there is an emotional connection. You've gone from just merely having this supposed guess to a real sense of knowledge, and you no longer have to worry about that. When you have the knowledge of something that then enables you to do something more in your life, and when you have the knowledge that God is your judge, that God is your helper, that he is the one who upholds and sustains you, why think otherwise? Why think that there is, no, there is something that can thwart you, that can ultimately harm you? Because when knowledge is present, there is strength. And that strength will be able to help you through whatever difficulties or trials that you are going through. Now, here's a quick point that I want to make when it comes to this knowledge. We as Christians are called to defend ourselves. We are not called to avenge ourselves. We are called to defend ourselves, not avenge ourselves. Now, what is the difference? In the story of Count of Monte Cristo, he takes revenge on all of these different people. He takes revenge on the magistrate. He takes revenge on the first mate. He takes revenge on his best friend, and he wants revenge also on his former fiance because he found out that she married someone else a mere month after he disappeared. He was very hurt by that. However, 
towards the end of the story, he finds out a number of different things. But what he didn't realize that was if he just took the finances that he got and the power that he took and he had and went to the authorities with what actually happened, he would have been perfectly within his rights to do all of that and he would have been able to see justice be served. Instead, he decided to take the path of revenge and intentionally ruin the lives of these other people rather than having it handled through the law. We as Christians are called to do what's right within our power. If it doesn't happen here on earth through the law, then we need to remember that God is the one who will ultimately judge these issues. We are not to take, our own, to take the laws into our own hands. We are called to use the power and knowledge that we know that God is our judge and use that as our foundational strength throughout our lives. Now this next verse can maybe be a little uncomfortable with Christians. Verse 5, he will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Praise God. Wow, that's a very interesting thing to say. A lot of us Christians are very comfortable with verse 4, but we're not really comfortable with verse 5. Theologians call lines like these, verses like these, imprecatory psalms. This is where someone is wishing God cast judgment down. There's something very emotionally visceral still happening right here with David. But David is not merely acting emotionally. He is saying something true, that God is in fact a good and righteous judge. That he will return this evil to his enemies. And that in faithfulness, God will put an end to him. So the, he the Hebrew word for evil is the word ra. Now, ra does not specifically just mean evil as we usually mean it in English. It has a wide etymological use where it can mean evil, calamity, just any sort of bad of any kind. So David is just simply saying, what has been done to me in the terms of this evil, you, please show it back appropriately to those who have done wrong. And in your faithfulness, put an end to him. That Hebrew word for faithfulness interestingly enough, is the Hebrew word emet. And emet also means truth, uh, faithfulness, certainty, stability. The Hebrew idea of faithfulness and truth are so interwound and bound up together in this idea of faith and truth. When David is saying, Lord, return this evil back onto somebody, uh, uh, return this evil back onto those who have harmed me, do it in truth. David is saying, Lord, I know you're going to be honest. I know you're going to be right and truthful in the judgment that you have for those that have har harmed me and wronged me. I will turn to you and trust you that you will do what is right in all of this. Knowing God is a judge also, know, also means that God is going to be the one who judges justly. He may well, in fact, return the evil to them, and we may never see how that happens. We have to be acting in faith that God will indeed turn this evil into something right and just. Evildoers will quite literally get a, and I'm sorry, I'm going to make a little Hebrew pun here. Evildoers will get a raw deal. <laughs> I'm sorry, I really like puns. I thought that was funny. So we have moved from being honest with God to knowing that God is judge to what then David does next. And this might be a little bit more difficult for us. Once you know that God is judge, what do you do? David says, give thanks to that judge. Knowledge without action is kind of useless. It's like, yeah, I know I'm going to be doing this thing, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Okay, that's interesting. 
So David instead then moves to an act of faith. He's going to do something right about this. He is talking about what he is right now going to do it. Now, I am someone who loves a number of different translations. I love the ESV. I love a whole host of different translations. But translating Hebrew poetry can be a real challenge. When it says, uh, Lord, I will do this. Lord, I will sacrifice to your name. Lord, I will give thanks to your name. There's a specific Hebrew form of this verb that's going on right there that's a little bit more challenging to translate or at least get the idea into the words. It really has this connotation of uh, being rejoiceful, being happy. Uh, it's expressing a longing, a wish, and a desire. So when David says, I will give thanks to the Lord, I will sacrifice a free will offering, what he really is trying to say is, Lord, I long to give a sacrifice to you. I will I, I, I desire, I wish to give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. He isn't merely talking about some future action that he will do. It's not this idea of, O Lord, I'm going to do this, and you know, if I do this, you know, you, you should probably do this. No. David is saying right now, in faith, I am going to act on what I know who you are and what you are going to do. I am going to rejoice. I am going to give thanks. Now, free will offerings are talked about primarily in Leviticus, and we don't really, you know, read too much of Leviticus. It's a wonderful book, by the way. But free will offerings are one that, get, that one gives without any sort of provocation or reason to do so. They consist in burnt offerings, and burnt offerings were something that you gave and that you gave up, but you would also then eat the meat afterwards. It was something that was supposed to be intended for celebration, something that was kind of a party, something that you would do as an enjoyment and an enjoyable thing. So David is saying, Lord, right now, in some way, I am going to be thankful and be happy about what I know you're going to do. I'm going to look forward to what you're going to be doing, so I'm going to give thanks right now. You know what it's like? It's like an engagement party. It's like a bachelor party. It's like a bachelorette party. You're celebrating something now in the expectation of what is going to happen. David has been honest with God. He's remembered the truth of who God is, and he's acting in accordance with that knowledge of who God is. And this is something that all of us Christians as difficult as our situations can be, we need to remember. Now, I'm going to come back to this point in just a little bit, but we're going to move on to verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is probably the hardest verse to talk about because I know for a fact that personally God has not delivered me from all of my immediate troubles. And I can only assume that there are a number of you in here who have your own troubles and struggles right now, and you're saying, God, I don't know where you are. What in the world is going on? Will you please, please help me? I, I just don't know what's happening right now. It can be very hard to rejoice in God when things are going wrong. It seems a little contradictory, contradictory that in the previous verse I'm saying, hey, we're going to be celebrating, but right now I'm really in the midst of something difficult. And that can be true. Years ago... I went through some personal betrayals of my own. I lost someone that I really cared about. And when the first person who came to help me walked into my life and said, hey, man, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get a job. I'm going to help you get over what happened to you. It turned out that that guy was a liar, just utterly lying to me. There was no job. There was no future with this other person. It was a very difficult time. And I was saying to God, God, where are you? Why is this so hurtful? Why is this so, so painful? How in the world can I rejoice in something so awful and difficult that's going on right now? 
But then, after I had some time to just let my emotions be, to be honest about what was going on in my life, I then remembered who God was. And I said, God, I need to remember something that's very true right now. As much as I want you to return to these other people what they have done to me, I need to remember that I have done wrong to other people, and I'm sure that they are wishing wrong, or that they are wishing that the wrong I've done to them be returned onto me. But let's all be honest. We'd much rather have mercy than punishment be put onto us. It is something that is so difficult for us because we want mercy and judgment, but we don't want that applied to ourselves. It's okay when it happens to other people, but it's not okay when it happens to us. So how can we rejoice in this? And I think when we realize that what David is rejoicing in is maybe not in his own immediate situation, but in his looking forward to something that is going to be able to help David say, Lord, I know that I've done wrong, but I'm looking forward to how you're going to be handling it. And as Christians, we can then look back instead because we know something that David didn't. We know that all rights will be that all wrongs will be made right and all punishments will be paid. But for the Christian, we know that all of the wrongs have been laid upon Jesus, that we receive mercy and grace and favor through what he has done for us. All of the wrong, all of the good, all of the things that we want to see ultimately are found and grounded in Jesus. And when I started to remember that, I started to remember, wait a minute. If I can look in the light of what God has ultimately done for me to handle the most fundamental problem that I have, which is that I am a sinner and I am not good enough to get before God on my own merit and that God has saved me from my own sin, I can look upon all of my other problems with perspective. For God has delivered me from every trouble. And what could every worse trouble that we could ever have but be disconnected and put out away from God other than having that fixed by God's own hand? Our deepest, truest trouble is our sin before a holy, good judge. But it's that judge who has lain the punishment not on ourselves but on Christ. And with that we can look on all of our other troubles, knowing that if God has saved me from the most deepest trouble I have, how can I not then look at all of these other troubles with a little bit less? Think of that psalm, that, I'm sorry, that hymn that is so incredibly favorable. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I don't know what your troubles are today. I don't know what some of the difficulties that you're going through today, but we need to remember our most fundamental trouble and realize that that trouble has been handled. And God is still somehow, in his own way, in, his own, in, in your life, working on those difficulties. And it is my prayer that when you read through this psalm that you can realize that looking on triumph is not something that you say, look at what I've done, look at the revenge that I've done, but it's rather, oh Lord, I see what you've done for me, and I see what you're doing for me even right now. I can rest and trust in that. I can see that you are working in my life. I don't know how you're going to deliver me, but I trust that you will.